I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I've been reading Lydia Davis for, for many years, um, and I think one of the things that's remarkable about her is that she's not just a very great writer of fiction, um, but also a very great translator, uh, the translator of Proust, Blanchot, Liris, um, and, and Flaubert, among, among others. Her collected stories, which gathers together, break it down, almost no memory, Samuel Johnson is indignant, and varieties of disturbance. Um, and she was awarded the International Man Booker Prize quite quite rightly and i first actually corresponded with lydia uh, when i was editing um, an anthology of translations for mcsweeney's uh, magazine and i wrote to her asking if she would be in this as she was one of my heroes and she wrote a very sweet note back saying no on the grounds that she was too busy and then she carelessly mentioned that she was as it happened um translating some short stories by a dutch writer called a.l schneiders i don't think that's how it's pronounced is it I, I, I think of it as A.L. Snyders because that's what they're always saying, A.L. Snyders. But of course, you're quite right here. We would say A.L. <laughs> we, Snyders. We, we will keep with A.L. You're, for, you're, for the moment. You're translating it. And so um, what we ended up doing was that she actually, um, we used one of Schneider's, one of Lydia's translations of Schneider's. And so partly because actually there's an interesting relationship between the way Schneider's writes um, and simply because sort of that's how we came together. Um, I thought it'd be nice if we begin, we're going to have, Millions of short stories throughout this, I hope. Um, but we're going to begin with one not by Lydia, but translated by Lydia, which I hope she'll introduce us to. Adam's picked out two stories. So what he does, he's written, um, I think, about 2,000 of them now. He's an immensely, I won't say prolific, he's just very consistent. He, he attempts to write one every morning. I, I've now met him for the first time a few days ago. So he, he said he, he attempts to think about writing one or thinks about attempting to write one. But he manages to send out to an email list he has, um, on, on which I now am about one story every week on average. Sometimes it's more. Sometimes it's a little less. And a lot of them are very good. In fact, they all may be very good, but my, my Dutch is, um, is still in the beginning stages. If, if the, if the story's easy enough, I can understand it. If it's a little more difficult, I usually don't try just because so many come along. But what, what I can do here is, is read a, a story or excerpts from, well, it's excerpts from a tiny story, uh, about what he calls a ZK, uh, what is he called? A ZKV, cafe, ZKV. Sounds like a cafe, but it's, it's the three Dutch, uh, letters ZKV, which stands for Zer Korte Verhalen, which is, uh, very short stories. So he, he's made this term, which I think is a very useful one. I will just say, read from a little bit from the um, what he says about it, his one statement about it. In primary school, in middle school, at university, everywhere, I belonged among the worst students with the lowest grades. What annoyed me above all was that I could not write long sentences. 
I developed a fear of the Anacoluthan. I had a sharp memory. I was a teaching assistant to Helinga, and he had to write little reports. His comment was, too lapidary. I believe I looked up that word, short, pithy texts, hewn from stone, lapis stone. Much later, I made a virtue of necessity. I began to write very short stories and noticed that brevity could be, one, technical in nature, few conjunctions, little explanation, trust in the reader's autonomous cerebration, and two, substantive. And that's the end of his little comment on ZKV, and I rather like that. Then I'll read one of his stories called Luck. When I was, and this is the story that Adam used in in the anthology. When I was young, I played the recorder. I took lessons from Case Otten, who lived in a large house on Koninginneweg. These opulent houses were formerly lived in by wealthy families, but after the war, mothers and daughters from Russia and Poland lived there, as well as poor musicians, poets with office jobs, students. For Case Otten, you had to go up ten flights of stairs. He gave lessons under the rafters. You looked out over Vondel Park. Sometimes I had lessons at the same time as Simon Castaris, who played alto recorder and was in love with a girl who worked in a magazine shop on Beethovenstraat. Simon had met her at the fair and treated her to a ride on the Caterpillar, where he kissed her. After that, he thought she was his, but she was not that kind of girl. And so he often went to gaze at her in Beethovenstraat toward closing time when darkness was falling and he could see her clearly in the light of the shop. She often saw him standing there and softened toward him because of his defenselessness. With this softening, love returned, thwarted, however, by Vondelpark. Simon lived on the prosperous side and his love on the overtome side in a common little street, another world. She preferred him to take up the accordion, and that happened too. I no longer saw him at the lessons with Case Otten. Years later, I met him one more time. He was through with that girl and with music. The accordion and the alto recorder lay at home waiting for new musicians. I yearn for the stories the recorder could tell over a hundred years. Who, in that time, blew their poetic breath through that wooden body? For musical instruments can live longer than people with a little luck, and I suspect they are also endowed with better memories. I suppose my first question is, um, Lydia, in that Schneider's um, sort of mini manifesto where he explains kind of his virtue of necessity, that his kind of love of brevity, is that something, do you recognize your reasons for using brevity so much in the two things he says, this idea that it's a use of trust in the reader and a substantive kind of notion of brevity? Um, Yeah. I could just leave it there. <laughs> Keep it brief. But unlike Snyder's, I'm capable of being very long-winded and composing very long sentences, and, I, and I'm not afraid of the Anna Coluthon, except that I can't remember quite what it is now. <laughs> I do like saying very little, or rather I should put it differently, that, that I like the material to determine how much I say. So if the, if the passing thought is really just that a tiny thought that just doesn't need more than a few words. I don't want to try to labor to give it more words, to think of how to frame it or add to it. I'd rather just let it be very short. 
And similarly, if, if, I mean, the one time I wrote a novel, it was because I had so much that I wanted to tell and so many passages of, of writing that I wanted to incorporate that, um, it required a much longer, uh, you know, story. So I, I like to think of it that way that the, the length and this, the form of it, it, it match as closely as possible the material as it presented itself to me. Yeah. So it's a trust in the material, as it were, rather than any formal. It starts with the material rather than starting with me saying, I want to write a novel. (laughs) What shall I write about? Shall I write about love? No, it it starts from the material and comes to me. Because you'd never choose to write about a fly particularly or cornmeal or any (laughs) of the other odd little things that have presented themselves to me. Because one of the things that I think is interesting when you, you know, that Schneider's, as it were, has this kind of genre, he's invented the very short story. And one of the things I think is interesting, though, about your short stories is that actually the kind of the multiple nature of them, that they actually have a, many different genres, that some are kind of a fairy tale, some are a report. And it was basically, I wanted just to give a little bouquet of five or so, four or five of these stories just for, for now. So um, if we could move mm-hmm. to our next reading... I thought it would be nice just to illustrate the kind of range of material that you've used. I think the interest is in seeing the different ways in which different material um, gets used. Yes, this is, this is a pair of stories um, now. At, at first, only the first one occurred to me, and then the second one occurred to me. Um, but they seem to go together. The first is called Contingency versus Necessity. He could be our dog... But he is not our dog, so he barks at us. (laughs) (laughs) Contingency versus necessity. Two, on vacation. He could be my husband, but he is not my husband. He is her husband. And so he takes her picture, not mine, as she stands in her flowered beach outfit in front of the old fortress. So that's, that's actually a pretty good example of, of the small thought occurring to you. And, I, and, and also people think that writing something, giving it a form, gets rid of it in some way, but it doesn't get rid of it for me every time I see a dog barking at me. You know, I have the same thought. <laughs> you know, he's, it's only a contingent matter that he's barking at me and not being my loyal companion. Same with husbands. <laughs> I'd met him first. You know. This one's called Revise, and it's, got, it's called Revise 1 because there, there were other revises, and it's really a, a succession of short statements. A fire does not need to be called warm or red. Remove more adjectives. The goose is really too silly. Take the goose out. It is enough that there is a search for footprints. The small head will be offensive. Remove the small head. But Elliot loved the small head because it was so true. The small head is taken out, but a narrow head is put in its place. When should the large hat appear? The woman, a traveler and teacher of the English language, was mistakenly identified by her hat and arrested for subversive activities. 
She could wear the large hat immediately or a little later. Should her name be Nina? The large hat is moved from the beginning to the end and then back to the beginning. Is it fair to say he will never marry? In any case, he does become engaged to his neighbor just in time, so it must not be said that he will never marry. Later, Anna falls in love with a, a, a man named Hank, but it is remarked that no one would be likely to fall in love with a man named Hank. So now the man is no longer named Hank, but Stefan, even though Stefan is a child living on Long Island with a sister named Anna. <laughs> so that started actually from, um, from real notes that I made to myself of what to do with various stories. So it, it started honestly, and then I, I embellished it a little bit. Um, changed it a little bit. The next is called The Language of the Telephone Company. This is another very short one. The Language of the Telephone Company. The trouble you reported recently is now working properly. <laughs> the cornmeal. This morning, the bowl of hot-cooked cornmeal set under a transparent plate and left there has covered the underside of the plate with droplets of condensation. It, too, is taking action in its own little way. So I guess that that's another example of the passing perception that doesn't need a whole short story to contain it. One of the things that's fascinating is how your stories you realize that a story doesn't have to tell a story, as it were. That's one of the great liberations, I think, as a, as a reader and a writer, is to kind of, um, that a story can be a piece of language from a telephone company. And I was thinking, if you look at the kind of collected stories as well, like, kind of, do you think there's been a kind of progression? Like, was there a moment when you had a, a kind of mo a momentous revelation of, like, how long did it take you to kind of get to this kind of... I, I, I think there were various moments, momentous revelations. <laughs> Long. And they were, they're quite d memorable for me. I can, I can describe three of them, but it doesn't really explain everything. Uh, the first was back in the seventies when I realized I didn't have to try to construct a traditional short story, a conventional short story a la Chekhov or Flannery O'Connor. Although as soon as I name any really good short story writer, you know, you, you don't feel that it's written to a formula. It's, it's, yeah. it's, its own form anyway. I mean, Flannery O'Connor jumps right in. Chekhov might set, set the scene a little more deliberately. Grace Paley was a big influence too for jumping right in and, and telling something very tight and witty and, uh, economical. But in any case, I realized that I could also just do, say, a paragraph-long story a la Kafka's Parables and Paradoxes, or another writer, Russell Edson, an American prose poet, who writes strange little domestic dramas. And that, I, f I felt an immense liberation. So that was one sort of huge change, change, changing moment. Another was in the early 80s, or I don't know exactly when, but when I realized I could write a story taken entirely from my own life, not really changing very much at all. I, I didn't have to do the 
the traditional thing of using some elements of my experience and, you know, a description of that person and uh, uh, this setting and patch it together and have a different plot. And, but I could just simply tell the story as it had happened <laughs> selectively. I mean, the selection is the, the hugely vital thing, you know, obviously, except in the case of Karl Ovid who's attempting anyway to to tell without you know i guess he's still selecting but he's selecting a great deal but then i then i suppose along with that or somewhere after that i mean I, i'll give you the third distinct sort of venture to new territory was when i was translating proust and because i was um so immersed in that work which i did find immensely satisfying I was working on his long sentences and researching the words very carefully and deeply all day long. So I didn't really even think of writing much of my own, but I didn't want to stop entirely. So that's when I challenged myself to see how short a story I could write, just a line or two or three with a title. And could I make it have some substance or impact? So that was a direct challenge. It wasn't just an evolution. But but somewhere in there, as I say, I uh, understood that I could try anything. You know, I could try, a, like the latest book has a, a veterinarian's report. It's uh, on. It tells the story, in effect, a sort of abbreviated story of one of my cats through the vet's report. But again, it's it's being very open to any form that comes along. So when I got the actual vet's report, I saw it as a story. I, it, it, there was enough in there, in the, even in the clipped language of the report, for for the character or the physical presence of the cat to emerge. So I started with that, the actual report, and then elaborated a little bit, but in the same language as the vet's office, and then added the death of the cat, which hadn't been in the report, because I guess she hadn't died yet. So, because I found the cat, the report rather funny. Um, the death wasn't funny, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's uh, so. All I'm saying is that if you're open to the different forms as they come along, you can do. You can still. It's still a story, but it's in a different form. And as you say, it's trusting the reader to fill in some of the gaps. Um. Actually, on that, when you just mentioned um titles, I realized that very rarely am I interested in how writers m write their actual kind of works. But I realized that with you, I do kind of want to ask about the composition process. Because it struck me that I'm so used to like thinking of a novel as something that you know is going to be written over with large interruptions, um, whereas it suddenly struck me that there is the possibility, if you're writing something that is a sentence, that it will be written in one go, as it were. And I suppose I partly want to kind of... But what interests me is often the shorter the story, the more important the title is, the relationship between the title and the story, and whether they both come together or whether you actually have to wait for one or the other to come. Um, how, and how much revision you actually do to even a relatively short story? Well, some of them are almost complete right away. I'm, I'm looking at the, them and thinking about them. For example, this is an easy example, the, the very short one called Samuel Johnson is Indignant. The entire body of that that follows the title is that Scotland has so few trees. So... 
I had actually copied this sentence out in my notebook years ago when I was reading either probably Boswell's Journey to the Hebrides. I think they each wrote an account of that trip they took together. And that struck me, I guess it amused me. And when, I guess in the midst of this project of writing the very shortest thing I could, I I think I came upon it, and I saw it as complete in itself, just breaking half of it into the title and half of it into the body of the text. And I guess it's important to say that I don't worry about what anyone will think. You know, I, I there is no little voice in my head anymore, or, or most of the time there isn't, saying, well, but what would anyone think of this? This is a silly thing to do. There's no voice like that. If if it pleases me, I do it. And then there's time enough later on to have second thoughts or to think this really is too silly or something. So that's one that happened immediately. The, the cornmeal, for example, even though it's such a simple little thing, um, that, well, the title there was obvious. Often the title is really just the name of the thing or what's, or what's happening, you know. Um, so that, that's sort of easy, like war and peace. You know, it's just <laughs> obvious. He didn't need a tricky title. <laughs> Anna Karenina. And that's, that's very, you know, it's a reliable and so the cornmeal has a very simple title. The title is, though, really important in these little ones because that's the first thing the reader reads, and it does set him or her up for the story in one way or another, prepares him or her. But then the actual story really took a lot of revision because there was some uh, unavoidable repetition, something about the droplets on the underside of the plate, I could look at it again, but I won't. But it, I, I do endlessly fuss with something that isn't quite right. There's another about a fly on the wall of a bathroom on a bus traveling to Boston, and I fussed endlessly with, I wanted it to have line breaks, not because it was a poem, but because I wanted it to be read that way with a pause at the end of each line. Similarly with the, the, for, contingency versus necessity about the dog, I want the pause at the end of the line. You, you need time to absorb each statement. Um, so I fussed endlessly with that. So, it, you know, that's sort of what happens. I was trying to think if there's any other great uh, example of a, well, we'll probably come to one later. Another thing I was kind of interested in is when I think you have, um, there's a sort of almost paradoxical thing that I think when, you write a miniature, it actually has a kind of um, microphonic effect, as it were, that it kind of suddenly very small things become quite exaggerated. Um, and one of the things I think that's so fascinating in, in your writing is that often, it's interesting to use this word long-winded, because I think, in a sense, these are the least long-winded stories I can think of. But it's also true that I think one of the things, one of the effects you really explore is exhaustiveness, would be another way of putting it. And I wondered if two very different stories on this theme, if you could read them, um, judgment and idea for a sign, and then we can maybe chat about them a little. Yeah, there's, oh, I was, I, I knew what you, when you said exhaustive, and it's true that exhaustiveness appeals to me tremendously. I really like to <laughs> do things exhaustively and probably exhaustingly. But the, the, the story about the cows, the, which has, uh, I think over 80, maybe 84, different observations of, of the cows across the road from me where I live. That was 
pretty exhaustive. I mean, I still see a few other things I could have commented on. You have exhausted but, the But power. I really was, was, you know, I really was looking and looking till there wasn't anything more to see. <laughs> but I guess there's always more to see. So, um, judgment. This is another quite short one. Judgment. Into how small a space the word judgment can be compressed. It must fit inside the brain of a ladybug as she, before my eyes, makes a decision. And this is, this is quite, quite a bit longer and in a way is exhaustive in the sense that once I started with the idea, and the idea did come to me on a train, as soon as I started developing it, I had to sort of cover all the bases, as we, I guess, is that a yeah. English expression Fine. too? <laughs> but actually, you know, not leave anything out. So it is a bit exhaustive, and I even wondered if it was a little too long, but uh, it's called Idea for a Sign. At the start of a train trip, people search for a good seat, and some of them take a careful look at the people nearby who have already chosen their seats to see if they will make good neighbors. It might help if we each wore a little sign, saying in what ways we will and will not be likely to, to disturb other passengers, such as will not talk on cell phone, will not eat smelly food. Included in mine would be will not talk on the cell phone at all, aside from perhaps a short communication to my husband at the beginning of the trip home, summarizing my visit in the city, or more rarely, a quick warning to a friend on the way down that I will be late, but will recline my seat back as far as it will go for most of the trip, except when I am eating my lunch or snack, may in fact be adjusting it slightly back and forth from time to time throughout the trip, will sooner or later eat something, usually a sandwich, sometimes a salad or a container of rice pudding, actually two containers of rice pudding, though small ones. Sandwich, almost always Swiss cheese with, in fact, very little cheese, just a single slice, and lettuce and tomato, which uh, tomato will not be noticeably smelly, at least as far as I can tell. I'm as tidy as I can be with the salad, but eating salad with a plastic fork is awkward and difficult. I'm tidy with the rice pudding, taking small bites, though when I remove the sealed top of the container, it can make a loud ripping noise for just a moment. May keep unscrewing the top of my water bottle and taking a drink of water, especially while eating my sandwich and about one hour afterwards. May be more restless than some other passengers and may clean my hands several times during the trip with a small bottle of hand sanitizer, sometimes using hand lotion afterwards, which involves reaching into my purse, taking out a small toiletries bag, unzipping it, and when finished, zipping it up again and returning it to my purse. But may also sit perfectly quietly for a few minutes or longer, staring out the window. May do nothing but read a book through most of the trip, except for one walk down the aisle to the restroom and back to my seat. But on another day, may put the book down every few minutes, take out a small notebook out of my purse, remove the rubber band from around it, and make a note in the notebook. Or, when reading through a back issue of a literary magazine, may rip pages out in order to save them, though I will try to do this only when train is stopped at a station. 
Lastly, after a day in the city, may untie my shoelaces and slip my shoes off for part of the trip, especially if the shoes are not very comfortable. Then, resting my bare feet on top of my shoes rather than directly on the floor, or very rarely may remove shoes and put on slippers if I have a pair with me, keeping them on until I have nearly reached my destination. But feet are quite clean and toenails have a nice dark red polish on them. I, I have certain doubts about little passages in there. <laughs> Could you talk a bit more about exhaustedness then? I mean, one of the things I'm interested in is it seems to me that almost the short form, and it seems paradoxical to say it, but the short form encourages, it's one of the great venues for the kind of exhaustive. And, but then Why it, do you think so? Because, because you're using a relatively short form, which is even that story is only two pages. You can then exhaust all the permutations of, of that one idea. Limited. Um, yeah. But then, as I was thinking that, I then thought, but then, of course, you are the translator of Proust, who is the great master of exhaustiveness on a much grander scale. And I was kind of just in, like, what do you think the appeal to you is? Of Proust? Oh, no, of, of the exhaustive. Oh. We can get to Proust. Oh, um, I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I just always have another question or another thing I want to, you know, one thing leads to another. I like to get very, I, I'm, very focused in on one thing. So I like to keep going with it as, as far as I can go. Because uh, yeah. I was just, um, one of the things I kind of wondered is, do you ever miss transitions? And what I mean by that is, I was thinking, you talk very beautifully in, in your introduction to your translation of Madame Bovary about kind of Flaubert and his effort to kind of uh, finesse the transitions in that novel. And it intrigues me the way you're, you know, you're saying you want to get right into one thing. Is there ever also a kind of counter movement to wanting to make one thing merge into another? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I, a lot of them. You know, I I could contradict myself in a minute if I saw another kind of story in which I'm doing that. But in certain, well, this one in particular, I do tend to start in and just want to go in an unbroken line. And it's very important to me not to have paragraph breaks. As soon as you have a paragraph break, it it is a a, a taking a breath and and implies a, a different direction or uh, so so I really like to go straight from beginning to end and um, th- there's often within the I'm not in this one I just read but often even within the space of a very short story there'll be a sort of statement and then a and then a counter statement a counter thought and either the the piece will have the two halves you know statement and counter statement or or it'll be the A B, really A B A or A B C structure, the statement, counterstatement, and then, and then resolution or uh, or back to the first statement with a permutation. You know, it's it's all very, uh, I don't know, structured. Um, the other thing I think, if we kind of on the level of not just the story but the kind of collection, it struck me. I actually had I wrote about this collection for the for the New York Review. Um, it feels wrong saying it in here, but um, one of the things that I gradually kind of noticed more and more was how many sort of patterns there were of of theme um and that so that kind of often even in very similar places that the the collection is divided into i think five sections and were, i started to worry there was some algorithm that i was missing of kind <laughs> of um the ways they would be structured and one of the things that I just that sort of what it brings me to is one of the the series in this in this collection is a series of stories from flaubert and i thought it'd be nice just to quickly talk about them partly so that maybe we can talk about translation uh, for a little bit. And I wonder if you could therefore just read or maybe explain the provenance of these, what you call stories from Flaubert, and then maybe read um, just one, I think. Yeah. Well, while, while I was translating Madame Bovary, 
I was I at a certain point thought I should start reading the correspondence of Flaubert um, because he talked very openly to his correspondent about what was going on with him in the writing of the book and how he was feeling about it and um, what difficulties he was having and how he was reacting. So I, I thought that would be very helpful to me. And also I wanted to see how he wrote when he wasn't revising intensively, when he was writing the letter straight off. And a lot of it, the, the parts about the novel obviously were very interesting to me. There were parts about literary life in Paris that were not so interesting to me, but I faithfully you know, read every word just in case there was something. But then as a great little um, sort of reward, every now and then he would just tell a little story to his correspondent that this is what happened yesterday. I went to a funeral and blah, blah, blah. And it would be very short, but Flaubert is such a good writer that even writing without all the intensive revision, these were very nicely told little stories, a little bit fragmentary, very brief, certainly, um, and usually ending with an exclamation like, oh, Shakespeare. And you're not quite sure how Shakespeare relates <laughs> to what he just said. So I thought after reading a, a number of these, just coming to them by chance, I think I was making ample notes with pencil, sort of a little index in the back of interesting things that I could refer to later. I thought, well, why don't I extract these and shape them into more complete stories, not by adding anything of my own, but simply maybe by cutting a little bit, sometimes bringing in a little information from outside to supplement something that was mysterious in the Flaubert by itself, in the letter by itself. And so I ended up with 13 of these plus one rant. I had to call it a rant because it really wasn't a story. It was him railing against modern industry in a terrific way with lots of exclamation marks. So I like these very much. And I, I did stop reading the, the, the letters when that particular time period, you know, when they weren't, when he was done with Madame Bovary. But I imagine that there are many, many more of these nice little stories in there. So I'm going to read this. This is one I actually did a little more to, but I'll explain what I did to it. Maybe I'll read it first and then explain what I did to it. Or I'll just tell you generally, I combined material from two letters and added something from Madame Bovary itself. So again, it's not me adding my own invention to it. It's called After You Left. You wanted me to tell you everything I did after we left each other. Well, I was very sad. It had been so lovely. When I saw your back disappear into the train compartment, I went up on the bridge to watch your train pass under me. That was all I saw. You were inside it. I looked after it as long as I could, and I listened to it. In the other direction, towards Rouen, the sky was red and striped with broad bands of purple. The sky would be long dark by the time I reached Rouen and you reached Paris. I lit another cigar. For a while I paced back and forth. Then, because I felt so numb and tired, I went into a cafe across the street and drank a glass of Kirsch. My train came into the station heading in the opposite direction from yours. In the compartment I met a man I knew from my school days. We talked for a long time, almost all the way back to Rouen. 
When I arrived, Louis was there to meet me as we had planned, but my mother hadn't sent the carriage to take us home. We waited for a while, and then, by moonlight, we walked across the bridge and through the port. In that part of town, there are two places where we could hire a hackney cab. At the second place, the people live in an old church. It was dark. We knocked and woke the woman who came to the door in her nightcap. Imagine the scene in the middle of the night with the interior of that old church behind her, her jaws gaping in a yawn, a candle burning, the lace shawl she wore hanging down below her hips. The horse had to be harnessed, of course. The breaching band had broken, and we waited while they mended it with a piece of rope. On the way home, I told Louis about my old school friend, who is his old school friend, too. I told him how you and I had spent our time together. Out the window, the moon was shining on the river. I remembered another journey home late at night by moonlight. I described it to Louis. There was deep snow on the ground. I was in a sleigh wearing my red wool hat and wrapped in my fur cloak. I had lost my boots that day on my way to see an exhibition of savages from Africa. All the windows were open, and I was smoking my pipe. The river was dark. The trees were dark. The moon shone on the fields of snow. They looked as smooth as satin. The snow-covered houses looked like little white bears curled up asleep. I imagined that I was in the Russian steppe. I thought I could hear reindeer snorting in the mist. I thought I could see a pack of wolves leaping up at the back of the sleigh. The eyes of the wolves were shining like coals on both sides of the road. When at last we reached home, it was one in the morning. I wanted to organize my work table before I went to bed. Out my study window, the moon was still shining, on the water, on the towpath, and close to the house on the tulip tree by my window. When I was done, Louis went off to his room, and I went off to mine. When I was reading these Flaubert stories, I imagined there was a sort of covert polemical intent on your part. Co covert what? Polemical intent. Oh, yeah? <laughs> where I was kind of thinking, in the same way as your stories kind of find stories where, you know, that they extend the kind of notion of what a story can be. It was almost as if by taking these stories from Flaubert, from his correspondence, you were kind of arguing that, you know, these were things that he hadn't included in his own novel. So it was as if you were saying these could have been stories um, that he wasn't um, thinking. And I partly want to ask you if that's true, but now I think it can't be true because it turns out that bits of Madame Bovary anyway are inside this story. Yes, that, well, there certainly was no conscious polemical intent. Uh, but, you know, unconscious things can operate. It's just that I, I felt these were lost, you know. They're not even translated into English necessarily because his letters i have not been trans all of them translated you know as a complete letters so unless you read french and you're quite patient because these are buried in with things that that are not necessarily so interesting then you then you're then you don't have these lovely little stories i just the, you can see there are two trips home one in the carriage and one in the sleigh. So that's how I, you know, there were two accounts. He, he had written to her about going home in the sleigh. So I didn't see how I could make two sort of, uh, two stories with such, I, you know, similar material. So I incorporated the second about the snow as a memory of, of his in the first. So that's where a little fictionalizing can come in.
And then the part from Madame Bovary is the, is the breaching band broken and repairing it with a piece of rope. That happens in Madame Bovary. And I think I wanted, I wanted one more beat there. They have to wait while the horse is harnessed. But that wasn't enough. I, I wanted them to have to wait a little longer or just one more sentence. So I took the liberty of, of moving it or lifting it from Madame Bovary. But then the, the other thing I like about this one or that interests me is that here he is. It's, it's in a letter and he's describing a trip home. And then he's describing on the trip home, he's remembering another trip home. And then in that, on that other trip home, he's imagining something that doesn't exist at all. And that's the wolves and the, what was the other, the reindeer and the wolves. But we as readers just follow right along. So we go from the sleigh, the carriage to the sleigh, to the Russian steppe, to the wolves without, you know, without a problem. Yeah. So I love the way fiction can just build like that. Um, it's also, I think, an incredibly moving story. And I kind of want to get to that subject of emotion and kind of style in a little bit. But I just first want to just briefly talk about translation, because um, we actually talked about when we were writing about this McSweeney's project, you mentioned this Flaubert project that you were working on or had just finished and said something like that, you know, you felt you could, we were arguing about how much liberty one could take in a translation. Um, and you said, well, in general, I feel that no liberty should be taken, but here I don't mind because I'm dealing with kind of raw material. I think you said, well, I'm, um, I'm making a story out of it. I'm not yeah. translating. You know, if I were, had the job of translating his letters, you, you would know, not. I would, I would yeah. be very faithful to exactly what he did in the letters. And one of the things that I think is interesting about you as a translator, um, is how, as it were, literal for you are as a translator, how fiercely you try to preserve um, stylistic things. Like one of the things I think I love very much in your Proust translation is the emphasis you put on the last words in his sentences and how important it is that the sentence in English should try and finish on the same word. Did you ever translate in a less faithful way? Have you? I mean, is this something that you've always believed, or did it? Is it something? Have you got more and more literal as you as, as you've translated more? Well, I've, I've translated all my adult life, and at many times it was for a living. And sometimes the publisher would, would ask me to just make it nice and readable in English, you know. So in other words, and sometimes the, the book itself, the style was so uncomfortable and so really not so good that I... I have no problem when it's when it's not a, a wonderful writer, and I'm doing it for a job, and I'm being asked to. Well, I'll probably get in hot water for saying all that, but I don't mind making changes. You know, I'm not. You know, I'm mainly faithful, of course, but I don't mind uh, changing. You know, an exclamation to a plain statement if the exclamation is uh, is uh, you know sentimental or you know. It de- depends very much on the book, but on the whole, and especially more and more, as I, whenever I'm given a, a very good book or choose to, to translate something very good, I think it's very important to preserve everything about it, including the mistakes. There's some mistakes in Proust, and some translators think you should silently correct them and that sort of thing. I've had the awkward situation of translating a book by a very good and important writer who the the first sentence of which is really not so great and then i feel that i should be faithful to it anyway even though i know i'll get criticized as a translator for yeah. having started the novel off with such an awkward unpleasant sentence 
But I guess, you know, you can do a lot with notes and afterwards and so on. You can say that sentence isn't very good in French either. You know? so. <laughs> and how far do you feel your work as a translator, or maybe not at all, has influenced your writing? I was kind of trying to think if I could see any connection. And then the only connection I could really think of was I kept thinking about the idea of the synonym where you have a very interesting, when you were just talking about, you know, your list of Proust um, comments and uh, one of the cahiers I think you did for the American University in Paris is a very interesting passage where you talk about aurore and how the different ways you could translate that. And that in the end, you actually settle for aurore because that's the right translation, even though in, there's a slight, it's not quite as common a word in, in English as in French. And it reminded me very much of, um, I don't know, maybe we've got time quickly to read it, is um, the first story in the collection, um, A Story of Stolen Salamis, which is also a story about synonyms. Yeah, I, I, I mean, what translation does is certainly forces you to uh, examine all the resources of English in a way that you don't, you're not forced to when you're doing your own writing. When you're doing your own writing, you tend to draw on your natural vocabulary, not particularly reach for vocabulary outside of your natural store of words and similarly write in a way natural to you. So I, I really enjoy that about translation, that you're writing in, in the style of another writer. So, I mean, it's really a pleasure to write in the style of Proust and then Flaubert also, even if I never would naturally write that way. And then, as you say, I, I don't believe in synonyms anymore because I'm so aware now of the tiny shades of difference. So you can have ten words that that mean something like lament or grieve or something, but they're all slightly different or or very different from one another, and they come from different uh, you know word origins, and they're they have different metaphors buried in them and uh, you know so it makes you aware of the, of the huge treasury of english and in a way that i i just don't think i would have had that same intensive training if i'd just just been doing my own writing i think was that the answer to your question i can't remember your question had several yeah. questions in it but i suppose i think i've got time for maybe one more question and i just quickly on that flaubert story there's a very nice point in your introduction to Madame Bovary where you... Oh, oh can I interrupt? Yes. <laughs> I remembered the other part of your... Well, your question was about how translation inter... I was going to say interfered with my... <laughs> how, my how translation affected my writing. But I had a, a, an acquaintance brought up a very interesting possibility just the other day that that I'd sort of set it up somehow that I was, that by doing both translation and writing, I was constantly frustrating myself from writing. In other words, putting this tight constraint on my time and my, and my writing to translate almost in order to build up a frustration that I would then explode into a story that was subversive and, you know, yeah. strange. And I thought that was a very interesting. Yeah. That's a psychological Yeah, so not a literary influence, but maybe a, a practical influence as well. That wasn't far off. Um, so just to find it, like, one of the things that I love about that Flaubert story is actually how moving, I find it kind of almost unbearably sad and beautiful. And then there's an interesting moment when you actually, and, you know, famously Flaubert was talking in Madame Bovary of how he wanted to move people, and then you quite beautifully, I think, say that actually you're not so moved by the kind of death of Madame Bovary or the end of Madame Bovary. And it struck me that one of the things that I really love in your stories is this disjunction between often an extremely particular kind of um, attention to linguistic detail, but that's often 
a way of a character or a voice trying to articulate something very painful or moving. And I was kind of wondering how far do you also want to move the reader? I th- I think it's, I, I never think in terms of I want to move the reader or I want to make the reader laugh or, because I think as soon as you get sort of deliberate like that, you, you, you can't do it. So it's, it's more that, that if the story is moving, it reflects the fact that I'm moved by, again, the material where it yeah. starts. And, um, I don't know beyond that, you know, what, how, what technique would you use, you know, if you're moved by the death of your cat? How would you convey the death of the cat in such a way as to move someone else? I don't ever stop and think how to do that. I think, so I really don't know. It's a bit mysterious, but somehow the emotion I feel at the heart of whatever it is comes through, usually by my not insisting on it, you know, that, that, the other one, another good example in the, in the collected stories, I guess, is grammar questions, which is really started with the death of my father, the dying of my father, and my asking myself that question as I sat at his bedside or walked to go visit him or something. You know, if someone asks me, is your, where's your father living? Do I say he's living in Vernon Hall when he's actually dying? You know, this is, this is a difficult question. And then that extended to other questions. Is he still he if he's looking like this or if he's in the form of ashes? So it just, you know, so I'm not anywhere in there really saying I'm so sad my father's dying. I'm just sort of conveying indirectly that he is dying and but it isn't deliberate it's it's just uh, you know the two things are there together the question occurs to me and i think it's an interesting question to ask about this difficult situation i think we have time for 10 or 15 minutes of questions from um it's probably a very obvious question now but have your collected stories been translated themselves into either french or dutch um I'm always bad at this because I don't keep track very well. But um, what foreign? I think some of some of it is in French. I, I think all of it is in Dutch now. But different foreign publishers take different strategies. Some will just do one book. It has four books in it, four collections of stories. So one will do just one book first. You know, maybe the first or maybe the last, and then do the others. Others will. I think the Dutch did it as two volumes. But with different names, they gave each one a name, one of the names of the stories. So, and I don't think they're all in French. French is sort of strangely lags behind some of the other tra- countries. So, this is slightly picking up on the question of exhaustiveness or exhaustion again. Um, at a, a couple of points, you talked about notes and notebooks, um, and it seems that some of the stories um, dramatize a kind of scene of of annotation and attention. And I wonder whether. Um, I guess this is in a way sort of contrasting some of the very, very short, perhaps one sentence stories and something longer like the cows. Whether there is in fact at the level of composition and, and planning and, and, and structuring and writing, um, an actually kind of uh, direct relationship between the, the volume or mode of attention and the precision or uh, extent of a story. Because one way to think about the very short, the very, very short story is that it's a kind of contraction 
that it's a, it's, it's a, a you know, sublimation, subliming down to this one point um, of something much more ragged. I wonder if that is, in fact, um, something that happens in your composition or entirely not. It, it doesn't usually, it, it does sometimes happen, but doesn't usually happen. I think um, in the beginning of my writing, when I was in my 20s, I would struggle and struggle with the long story, and it would grow and shrink and grow and shrink. And I think I've, it probably scared me permanently off, you know, the difficulties of, you know, struggling with an unwieldy thing. But maybe it isn't for that reason that the material seems to say right away whether it wants to be two lines or a paragraph or a page. In a, on a couple of occasions, like, um, a story called Kafka Cook's Dinner occurred to me as a really as a very short, limited idea how much trouble Kafka would have organizing a, a dinner party. As I was having trouble, I thought he would have a lot more trouble. And so I thought that would be very nice for one paragraph. And and that grew for the simple reason that I looked at some of his letters to get more of his language, because how do you write? How do you write as though you are Kafka, you know, thinking to himself? So I looked at his letters and then found so much actual good language that I had to make a, quite a long story to incorporate it all. I just wanted him to speak that long. In other, in one other case, for example, I wrote a so-called dream story about um, not having ever received the PhD that I thought I had, and it was quite long. I mean, it was a lot longer than it is now. One paragraph, I hadn't taken the exam that I thought I had taken, and I didn't, in fact, have a degree. And all these years, I had thought I had a degree. And that that diminished down to one of the very short, just couple of lines. All these years, I thought I had a PhD, but I do not have a PhD. <laughs> and I just preferred it without all the the little bit of extra. So generally, it is pretty, you know, like, 95% the length it's going to be, and then it either grows a few more percentage points or diminishes a little bit. Certainly notes, notebooks, taking notes is all really important to me. Yeah. Um, one of the things that amused me is um, when I think your collected stories was reviewed in the in the London Review, since we're here, um, it was reviewed by a friend of mine, the novelist Clancy Martin, and he quoted in full one of his favorite stories by you, um, Information from the North Concerning the Ice, um, which runs, each seal uses many blowholes, and every blowhole is used by many seals. Um, and Clancy and he, developed three paragraphs of how this was not only an allegory of sex, but also an allegory of sex written by a young woman who has suffered. And so he kind of invented a whole kind of voice. And then Elliot Weinberger brilliantly wrote in and said, sometimes a blowhole is just a blowhole. <laughs> and, um, and he uh, ended that letter, ask a seal. Ask a seal. <laughs> um, and it kind of struck me that I actually had the opposite impulse when I was kind of trying to write about these stories. Is it they seem to me the most literal stories, as it were, that I know of? And yet I presume that this kind of that some readers obviously want to see these allegories because so much is kind of, as it were, withheld in a traditional way. So I'm assuming I just wanted to check they were not allegories. <laughs> they were not. I mean, you you never know what is happening, you know, subconsciously, and but. I'll just tell you exactly what interested me in that tiny story was, was, it was a sort of a mathematical thing that literally what the story is, that the fact that one seal would visit a number of blowholes and that 
then in turn, each blowhole would be number, you know, visited by a number of seals. And somehow I, I still can't comprehend it. There's something <laughs> hard for me to comprehend. Yeah. And that's what fascinated me about it. It's, it's a good example of one of these tiny, tiny stories that for me anyway, and, that, and I'm the one I worry about first, can still yield the same puzzlement or interest over and over again. So it certainly, he was not really anywhere close to what I imagined the story was about. I think we've got one more question. So anyone, there's someone at the back. Two more. Okay. Good evening. I, I was uh, wanted to ask about the translation of Proust and um, was interested to know you're not only facing this colossus of a, of a novel that you have to translate, but the extent to which you refer also to the previous translations that have been made and how much you are conscious of kind of living in their shadow and trying to do something different to what's been done previously. In the same way that I guess the next translator of Proust, whoever that may be, will live in the shadow of your translation. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's even more of a question with Madame Bovary because there have been, say, 21 or 22 different translations now, and they're really by different people, whereas I, I think of the Proust as having only one previous translator, which was C.K. Scott Moncrief, then there were two revisions, but I know from checking very closely, you know, how much they changed and how much they did not change. And that, the, the, the translation really is still his, but with revisions. And, um, so there's one monumental translation. Now I only translated the first volume, Swan's Way, and he translated, I think, six out of the seven books and then died, which is one reason other people don't quickly attempt to do all the the entire thing. I was certainly in a, in the shadow more of Proust than of the you know it really was Proust that that I was was aware of more than the previous translations. And when you say try to do, would I try to to what extent would I try to do something different? I wouldn't try to do something different. I would try to just stay very, very close to what Proust had done. And that I know also from the, the Flaubert that, um, all those, I had 13 of those translations, previous translations, and they were all quite different. So you'd think they would coincide much more than they do. These are 13 different writers and they, they have their, as I said, their natural vocabulary and many of them felt they could change sentence structure as they liked and, I did not feel I could do anything like that. So um, uh, there were other very faithful or literal ones, but some of them didn't write very well and didn't have very good ears. And you know, so you have a huge variety, and there's no one easy, straightforward solution. You know, at one translation. But I did feel very much in the shadow of a great book. I mean, that I I went to greater lengths when we talk about exhaustive. It probably wasn't even exhaustive, but Whereas with other books, I tried to do an honorable, good job, conscientious job. With the Proust, I felt um, that now I could just go all out to, you know, look up every word, you know, and study the French etymology and just learn the language sort of almost all over again and know it more deeply than I ever had before. And same for English, too. So it was, that's part of the, that was part of the pleasure. It was so exhaustive. Question up there. Uh, hello. Um, I was wondering if you have read any Japanese literature, uh, Japanese short stories to be exact, because um, I get the feeling I get from your stories is that you have the same implicit 
approach, the Japanese can talk about everything else except what you think they are talking about, and they can describe a part of the skin for two pages. And I think um, I'm thinking of one story of your safe love, where you are exhaustive in ten sentences. So I was wondering if you have, I don't know, got into any Japanese literature at all. Well, strangely, more more novels and poetry, and less short stories. But if if you can recommend certain writers of short stories who do this, particularly the very very short, if I mean this sounds very interesting. So, I I mean I read a great deal of Basho at a certain point, Journey to the North. I I loved that um, that particular work because of the alternation between the often sort of mundane account of the travel, you know, we were slipping and sliding in the mud this morning and we were hot and sweaty and and then we came to this temple or this grove of trees and then he would have a a small poem about the grove of trees and I just loved the the alternation back and forth and um, that's not quite what you're talking about but I haven't, I, I do absorb things like that pretty deeply when it's a form I like, whether Basho or Zebald or Hanke. I absorb it and uh, it gives me great pleasure. So something happens there. Uh, so I think I have to wrap up that non-exhaustive, very short um, conversation. Um, and thank you very much, Lydia Davis. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.